I wanted to take a little bit of a deeper dive into the Australian share market and I thought well who better than our resident uh, expert on Australian shares, Malcolm Palmer. Welcome and uh, thanks very much for taking the time to come and talk to us. Uh, Malcolm, I've just outlined uh, that um, current earnings in the marketplace seem to be a little bit expensive, but once you start looking at, and obviously that's uh, pandemic related, but once you start looking a little bit further out at years two, year two profits and year three profits, um, the market looks much more reasonable because obviously we're unlikely to get pandemic number two and number three. What are your views on uh, earnings as we see them at the moment and how's your portfolio shaped to take advantage, I guess, of uh, earnings a little bit further out? Emmanuel, thank you for the opportunity to speak to you again today. First of all, the stock market is affected by current year earnings, dramatically so, because there's so much guidance withdrawn and so much uncertainty about the profit numbers that really the numbers are really very difficult to put a finger on. So we need to look forward into next year. So we're talking about June 21 and June 22. And typically the stock market will start to react on the following year's earnings, that is the June 22 numbers, around about 69 months prior to the previous year end. So we're talking around about the summertime here, people start to focus on the June 22 numbers and start to put the current financial year behind us. Now, the recovery cycle is the important thing. So I expect next year the earnings on on average across the ASX 200 for the year to June 21 to be not materially better than this year past because this year, recollect, we had nine good months and three bad months. This coming year we're going to have 12 slow months. So consequently it really is 22 and 23 that the focus point comes to and the, and the resurgence of the stock market will take place once the market starts to price those numbers in. So you're expecting PE multiples then to more realistically reflect what we're likely to see in the future? So P multiples have expanded a little bit as bond yields have gone down. So the earnings yield of the market has been favourably priced relative to bond yields simply because, if you like, the, um, the central banks of the world have taken control, somewhat dictatorially I have to say, on interest rates around the world and consequently set the denominator so low so price earnings ratios can expand a little bit in that environment. So if we cast our mind forward and think in 2021 and 22 bond yields are still going to be, say, sub 2%, at the long end, 10 years, then the expansion of the multiplier of PEs will still be quite high and numbers of 15 to 20 will be commonplace in terms of valuation and you might find with a little bit of earnings appreciation in 22 the stock market might start to perform quite well. Is it your expectation that bond yields can remain low post um, I guess the Reserve Bank has told us that they're going to keep them low for at least three years. Is that what you're thinking as well? It, it seems to be. The Reserve Bank and other central banks, of course, have got a need to keep inflation under control. And inflation's been under control anyway because of the heavy-handedness of globalisation and automation. So they're actually acting in a favourable environment for inflation. Keeping inflation down is not difficult when you've got anti-inflationary forces anyway. So, so effectively what the Reserve but what the Federal Reserve has told us, which is, well, we may potentially let inflation run higher for a little bit longer, that seems appropriate for, at, at the current time? Uh, it is appropriate, and I think a little bit of inflation is a good thing, and letting a little bit of inflation come back into the system is better than the opposite, which is the deflationary environment, which we run the risk of having if there's not action taken. So it is a, a difficult economic environment, and the thing that bugs me mostly about it, if there is a negative, uh, is the 
potential for the central banks which are taking such a controlling position to maybe lose control a little bit of the process. And in, in other words, inflation either runs away from their targets unexpectedly or the opposite, you have some negative inflation numbers. Do you see that as being a big chance that inflation runs away from them unexpectedly? Because that's got to be our biggest risk scenario for any recovery from here in stock markets, sure. doesn't it? It's, it's the number one. If you look at the sensitivity of bond yields to earnings yields, then it's the number one risk. If bond yields tick up quite sharply, as happened, say, for example, in 1994... I remember real it real crisis. well. <laughs> yeah. You have a crisis in the stock market because you have a revaluation effect that's negative based on bonds. Now, for the central banks to lose that control, um, you would need to have heavy inflationary forces elsewhere, like in energy prices or materials, or, or some sort of geopolitical event that might cause that to happen, for example, OPEC. So let's have a look at your portfolio, I guess. Um, in terms of its structure, um, looking, say, at the materials and energy sectors in particular and, and potentially the banks, what are your views at this point in time? So starting with the materials and energy, so we're, we're owning BHP in the materials sector and BHP has been a good share. It's obviously benefiting from the combination of the higher commodity prices, particularly iron ore, and, and the export markets have been somewhat benefited by the Australian dollar staying at around about the 70 to 71 cent level. So it's been happy times for BHP and it's been a share that's performing well. The energy side, so companies like Woodside and Santos that we own, uh, Woodside in particular is a very undervalued company. The assets, the infrastructure assets at the Northwest Shelf and Pluto are very strong, yet the company, which doesn't produce much oil, is being materially affected by the LNG translation effect price of the low oil price. So Woodside's a little unfairly treated in this marketplace, and we see it as, as perhaps the most undervalued stock in the ASX 200, the big ones, um, and we're quite happy to, to have a bigger position there. Santos is a bit different because Santos has got a domestic gas business that relies on some government regulation and development as well. So the sector is really constrained by the oil price, but not so much from the operational risks of those companies. At the utility side, so we're talking about AGL Energy, for example, which is a retailer and a power station company, uh, they're, they're a little bit affected by the government regulatory environment. So the government regulator is setting the prices to try and keep the wholesale price down a little bit. And we also have in the portfolio Spark Infrastructure, which is a transmission company. So they don't do either of those things. They don't develop through the power stations, nor do they retail. But they're just a transmission infrastructure company, which is just a yield play at about 6%. So the sector is a little distressed, if you like, because of the oil price. But it's actually quite cheap. But it's positioned at the value matrix end of the stock market, which has been a little bit out of favour of late. Having having looked at what's value and what's not value, um, I guess property trusts have really been bashed around thanks to the pandemic um, and in particular the retail malls, uh, shopping centres like vicinity centre, like centre group. Um, is it time to sort of dip a toe in the water there? Or, or well, it's tempting, <laughs> Emmanuel, isn't it? The, uh, the price of Centre Group down towards $2 is uh, somewhat uh, close to 40% lower than its tangible asset value for the property they own. But their funds from operations are not so strong, so which is the other criteria for valuation of REITs. And, of course, you have this great dilemma going forward. And if you take, for example, GPT, which is probably our preferred property security REIT at the moment, they have, uh, at Australia Square, for example, they have such a low occupancy, yet a very high rental take. So there's a big disconnect brewing between the number of people who are actually occupying office buildings and the rent they're paying versus the landlord and the tenant, which I, I suspect over time, maybe not with GPT, but over time will lead to quite some years of litigation and stress between tenant and landlord. 
And so it's the playing out of that in a post-pandemic economic environment that's pretty important for working out the valuations of these securities going forward. They're high on our list of possibilities for the portfolio. Okay, but then, again, buying into those, um, you have to have patience for them to play themselves out and for that valuation to be realised. Would that be a fair call? You do, and you also need to look at maybe, for example, a relativity of international. Uh, We're looking, for example, at um, some of the Asian property trusts, like Capital Land, Hong Kong Land, for example, and they're cheaper than the ones here. So you've got quite a bit of downside still, a potential downside, based on the commercial negotiation outcomes of the landlord and the tenant going forward. So timing is crucial, and we have had REITs in the portfolio before, and perhaps will again soon, but not just at the moment. Okay. Now, look, the banking sector makes up a very large part of the Australian market. Um, And in fact, uh, there have been years gone by when, uh, I guess, you know, anyone that's wanted to bet against the banks has either suffered greatly or they've made some really good returns. Currently, the bank's well, they look a little bit scary, um, to say the least, only because we're not sure how many people are likely to default on loans, if they do at all, or whether they're likely to return back to work and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Do you have a view on that? And um, can you just elaborate a little bit more? I do have a view, and I'm not um, particularly negative on the banks. I think that there is hard yards ahead of them in terms of share price recovery, but their balance sheets are strong, their strong franchises, their technological prowess is good, their capacity to withstand competition has been going on for decades now, and, and even if you have competition nibbling around the edges of what they do, they tend to be able to compete back through their own technological outcomes. Uh, And, of course, the balance sheets have improved, uh, partly to do with the necessity post-Royal Commission of uh, jettisoning the businesses that they don't need to own, and partly to do with some prudence in management in recent times. So uh, capital ratios are good, balance sheets are strong, franchise positions are good. Uh, The government is giving them also, through a concept, or the Reserve Bank, through this concept of the term funding facility, which has now gone beyond $200 The term funding facility provides to the banking system specifically RBA money at 0.25 and potentially at 0.1 now, following the next RBA meeting. So they've got as much money as they need at almost nothing for as long as they need it, which means that their net interest margin, which has been contracting with low rates, perhaps won't contract any further. So in in the sense of core operational outcomes, they're reasonably solid. Um, The incidence of bad debt you refer to is a real thing, though. So how many bad debts will need to be accounted for over the coming years? The residential mortgage bad debt situation probably won't be all that extreme. But the commercial marketplace, business loans, might become a little bit more problematic as the next year or two progresses. So underweight a little bit the banks, um, but not so much that we should be particularly fearful of them. And if they do have a good rally, maybe we trim a little bit out. So again, sell, sell strength, because can you see actual growth coming back, growth in profits coming back for the banks, or it's more of a sort of defensive back foot type of scenario? No, the, the former there, Emmanuel, so there'll be quite strong growth. They're economic cyclicals. Okay, so any economic cyclical industry, like a value stock like the banks, will have a very sharp recovery in profit. If you go back to the beginning of this discussion, in the sort of 22 financial year, when we expect earnings to start to recover, or at least the stock market to presume earnings to recover, then there'll be a, a pick-up in the value stocks, and the banks are in that category, and you'll find quite sharp uh, increases in profitability. Bear in mind also that the banks... Um, if you think about what they make. So Commonwealth Bank's making 
10 to 20 million dollars profit every every day as we sit here so the retention of that profit as they're paying not much in dividends is actually swelling their valuation on a day-by-day basis so the business franchises are going quite solidly at present perfect okay um generally speaking though um you know we've seen a little bit of weakness uh in the market in the last few weeks um it, it, it seems to me and i had written in my latest report that it was more of a buying opportunity and potential to, to spend a little bit of money here, and it was going to be a healthy correction. Um, is that your take on the market? I mean, that was my take, but it, would that be your take? Yes, it is. So if you backtrack on the portfolio to the beginning of this year, we went into the pandemic with about 30% cash. We spent some of it during March and April. We bought um, Ansel and Sydney Airport, for example, as new investments um, during the pandemic month. And then we've sold a bit uh, subsequent to that as the last uh, month or two has gone by and the market's rallied a little bit. Bearing in mind, of course, that the sort of 6,100 point on the index was achieved in the first week of June and now we're almost in October. So consequently, the stock market's not going anywhere at all and hasn't for a number of months now. We have, however, just started to do a little bit of buying. Uh, we bought Spark Infrastructure for the portfolio just a couple of weeks ago, and we're buying a little bit more Woodside, as I referred to um, this week. So we've dropped the cash down into the 20s again, uh, as opposed to into the 30s, trying to take advantage of some opportunities. Obviously, the next month or two has got the US election issue hovering over market psychology more than anything. And so there may be some volatility spots ahead that we could take advantage of as well. What else in the portfolio do we have that um, we should just keep a small focus on? Yeah, we've got a couple of interesting companies in the portfolio. So um, let's start with agriculture. We, we bought the shares in Costa Group uh, a little while ago. And Costa is Australia's leading horticultural company. So blueberries and strawberries and citrus and mushrooms, for example. And we bought it uh, late last year, drought affected and indeed bushfire affected. And we thought I remember there was a bit of, <laughs> I remember very well. We thought there was an opportunity. I remember you in the bushfires, Emmanuel, the terrible stories you had. So consequently, um, it was a stock that was underdone in the stock market at that point in time. And as it comes to pass, the, the Thankfully, the drought's broken in many parts of Australia, which is a really good economic theme, by the way. That's um, one of the little good news stories in this otherwise terrible year. But cost has recovered a little bit. They had a good set of results. Um, the, the turnover of the volumes of their horticultural goods has gone quite well. And the only problem they have now, of course, is that they're always at the behest of the supermarkets in terms of pricing power. So it's really tough to deal with Woolies and Coles. But good business is all the same. Speaking of Woolies and Coles, so whilst we don't own them at present, or, and West Farmers as well, these consumer defence are relatively fully priced, but of course they've been somewhat benefited by the economic and social trends of this year. So high turnover through the shopping centres, the, uh, the supermarket shopping centres, higher costs of operation, but higher turnover. So they've been a real beneficiary of the net present value of their cash flows when the denominator, the bond yield, is so low. So it's easy for the market to justify a very high multiple on a defensive when the alternative is low, not so hard to justify when the reverse takes place. So a big beneficiary in that sector. And of course, at the right price, Wes Farmers, Woolworths or Coles would find a way into the portfolio as we've had them before. We only sold Wes Farmers earlier this year, as you might recollect. Elsewhere in the portfolio, of course, the healthcare stocks. So it turned to the growth side of things. So we still own three healthcare stocks. So we did trim them a little bit. 
uh, Ramsey Healthcare and Sonic Healthcare and CSL, so our three large healthcare companies. And then we also have Ancel. So Ancel is the company that manufactures the gloves for surgeons and industrial, and that's been a huge pandemic stock, of course, um, both in terms of its operational performance and also the psychology of its a pandemic stock, so it must be good. So uh, those four healthcare stocks are in the portfolio and they've, they've gone quite well this year. Um, in fact, that sector's outperformed quite dramatically. And then in the, if you like, the post-healthcare sector, we've got InvoCare, which is funerals, um, when healthcare no longer <laughs> works for you. And uh, that business has been one of the surprising things, and there's so many surprising things this year, but um, the funeral industry is, has had a bad year because fewer people are dying, which is the most oddest thing, given that there's a pandemic, um, that the death rate in Australia has gone down between 2 and 4%. So obviously because influenza hasn't been spreading. And, and as a consequence, InvoCare's had fewer funerals to host and fewer people at the funerals and consequently lesser cash flow. Um, but it's a strong franchise business and uh, we expect it to be a good one to have in the portfolio. It's actually very interesting that you mention that because, um, you know, I was talking to a few doctor cousins of mine and they said that if this wasn't called COVID-19, um, it actually would have been a bad flu season interestingly enough so um you know and and i guess the fact that we've all isolated and we haven't been transmitting um you know germs to each other um the death rate has gone down thing quite is, a lot. it's been a good outcome of otherwise horrid year that um the pandemic has caused there to be uh, some some social and health um, benefits elsewhere so that's invocare uh, we also own the miserable company called telstra we've got a small stake in telstra and telstra has been um affected as it has been for a long time by the nbn and the new arrangement or the new deal by the nbn to uh to expand expand the network through higher fiber coverage is potentially uh, game-changing for Telstra as well because T22, which is Telstra's operational plan for separation of Infraco from Telstra, um, separating all their infra infrastructure assets into a new company, is coincident with what they're talking about with NBN here. So there just may be some opportunity for the Telstra infrastructure assets and the NBN Co to do some sort of corporate deal in a couple of years' time. So it's sort of an interesting side play to what's going on at Telstra, and uh, and consequently it's a, it's a share that we sort of reluctantly persevering with for a little bit longer. In the banking sector, we also own Macquarie. Quarry, which is not quite in that same camp we were talking about before. So Macquarie is more to do with infrastructure and investment banking. Probably got only one area that worries me a little bit, the aircraft leasing side of their infrastructure. Um, there's obviously terrible times in, in, um, in, the, in the travel industry and consequently there's a very significant downtrend in the leasing of, of aeroplanes. So that's a, a small problem for Macquarie, but otherwise it's going really well. Um, we've still got a sort of plus $130 valuation on Telstra, they're about 120 at Macquarie. Macquarie. Oh, I was going to say, um, I better get advice on. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and uh, currently about $120 so got a little bit of upside there. And then in the travel sector, Sydney Airport, which we bought in, in April. And so Sydney Airport shares at down around about $5, just good value from a net present value of when the air, airport opens again basis. So talking about what you're saying about this year's earnings, well, there aren't any earnings for a company like Sydney Airport. So you need to look through and discount the future cash flows back to today to get to something materially higher. So we think, you know, six to $7 per share of net present value is a, an appropriate number for Sydney Airport, um, assuming that we have a, a, a reopening, if you like, of the travel industry around about what we expect, which is not back to 2019 levels for a few years, but certainly a recovery from the aircraft movement numbers that we've had of late. So again, the important point there is that the investment is good, 
but you have to have patience in its recovery and that will depend on whether we get an antiviral yeah, plenty of factors there. Yeah, well, well, the vaccine, of course, is the big deal, isn't it? And 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 the, the the distribution of a vaccine is going to be representative of a psychological improvement in investor confidence, isn't it? Because people will say, well, I'm going to go back into the stock market because the very existence of a vaccine is going to cause there to be a, a fix-up in the travel and the tourism industries and so on, which will cause there to be an economic surge. So it's pretty important in the scheme of things, um, vaccine or not, as we go forward. And it's uh, not necessarily, not just for the health benefit, but also for the, the psychological or the confidence of investing. I guess on that point, most of us are guessing more than you know, anything else about when, how, you know, how effective is a vaccine likely to be. Are you optimistic on that front, uh, that, that a vaccine will be found uh, sooner rather than later, or just maybe it's going to take time? Yeah, a few elements. So, you know, obviously you've got Operation Warp Speed in America where as many billions of dollars as required is being put into the research and development of vaccines. So there's 132 different companies in the world now that have got vaccines under development and, and of those there is a um, significant likelihood that half a dozen of them, given they're using the same antibodies, will come up with something that's meaningful. How effective it is um, will have to wait and see and how widely distributable it is is another issue of the next six months or so to tell. But yes, I imagine that uh, medical science is sufficiently proficient to come up with something that's effective in, in to the extent that we need it to be and fingers crossed it'll happen sooner rather than later. Yeah, so effectively what we're saying there is is that um, you know something will be found um, and uh, but it, will it really be life as we knew it back in December of 2019 or have we had a structural decrease in economic activity because of that pandemic? Well I think there was a, a, a slowdown coming anyway if you look here back to last year and cast your mind forward there was an economic slowdown coming in the normal sequence of things so we we're going to suffer that anyway um, but I th and I think that some parts of economic life will go back to normal and others won't. There'll be quite a remarkable surge in confidence that will lead to a lot more travel, a lot more dining out, a lot more of the sorts of things we don't expect to happen at the moment. Just look at the traffic on the roads, how quickly that's recovered. So I'd be surprised how quickly things recover when, when there's a vaccine, a bit more confidence around. And I'd be quite optimistic that when that happens, there's a coincidence of things. So in other words, a coincidence of there being a vaccine, less, of course, pandemic risk and a little bit of economic uptick that we might find ourselves back into a, a rosier position that we've got the, than we've got this year. Malcolm, we spoke at the conference, uh, uh, what is it, almost a year and a half ago now, um, and uh, I think my last slide was, uh, I'm very worried that the world will turn Japanese um, and that we actually have interest rates much lower for much longer than anybody could ever imagine. I'm always in two minds about interest rates. One is that, well, we've got low inflation, so that's a good thing that we have low interest rates. But at the same time, interest rates get so low that they tell us that the world is not a healthy place. So, you know, how do you juggle that between, how do you juggle between that and, I guess, you know, in constructing the portfolio and, and resisting, I guess, the temptation to extrapolate very low interest rates forever and then putting that as the discount rate to get some, I guess, valuations in companies that could be effectively in the stratosphere? 
Yeah. So twice, uh, as you know, our, our modelling uses twice risk-free, and twice risk-free at the moment as its benchmark is only 1.55%. So I don't use that because I think it's unreal. Okay. So I think that the um, if the, the contrivance of interest rates is so great that if you use the current 0.7 or 0 overseas rate as your financial denominator on asset valuations, then you're going to come a cropper um, down the track. So I use three and a quarter as a normalised interest rate through the cycle, even though the long-term average is five, I'm using a three and a quarter number as a long-term bond yield here. And that number, the three and a quarter, gives me a, a stock market forecast adjustment ASX 200 of 6,200 points, which coincidentally is not a long way from where we are now. Uh, so we are reasonably comfortable with that valuation given that we've already taken this buffer into it. If we do happen to have for some reason two rather than three and a quarter as a mid-cycle number, then you'll have a further expansion of PE ratios and in fact a higher stock market. So we'd be a little bit bullish if that was the case. And, and, and I guess, you know, in terms of translating that into um, how much higher evaluation of the stock market? Are we talking 10%? Perhaps more. Perhaps more. Mm. So if, if it, it, it is that sensitive. So interest rates are so sensitive to stock market performance. And if the market feels confident that the denominator is 2%, say, for the long term as opposed to 3%, then you're going to have quite a sharp trend upwards or a, a, a multiplier expansion that will be lasting rather than temporary. I don't disagree with, uh, with I guess, that, that view. And um, I guess it is really hard at this point in time to see interest rates going up a lot, given the way that the world is, yeah, is that, behaving. That's right. And, and so we, we have a fundamental view in the, in the care portfolio is to have the cash we've held this year invested by the end of this downturn, given interest rates and given the recovery cycle and so on. And of course, that's the easiest thing in the world to say and the hardest to do. So we've got, still got 28% cash or 26% cash. We need to invest that over the next, say, six, nine, 12 months and try and find opportunities around the US election or the new year, whenever it happens to be, to put that money to work. Are you likely to drift down, I guess, a little bit in market cap? So you're traditionally top 100 companies and you like, to, you like to invest there. What are the opportunities outside of the 100, so say 100 to 150, so to speak? Yeah, so in our experience, the, the smaller the market cap, the more likely it is to run into financial trouble in a recession, okay? So that's important. Um, and there's lots of experience and history of that, of, of you know, small companies coming unstuck if things go really bad. So our preference is to stay at the top end of town, um, so long as the companies are solid. and. But ASX 200, is lots of companies in it still, obviously 200. So there's quite a few opportunities in there if valuation comes about. So, you know, we're talking about Costa, for example. It's um, a fair way down the list. So that was something relatively new. And if something else comes up like that, we'd be quite happy to buy it. Uh, and so you're just monitoring, I guess? Uh, um, and, uh, yeah, all, all of the ASX 200 we monitor, yes. OK. Um, Malcolm, I must ask you, um, you know, the buy now, pay later stocks. Um, they tend to scare me. They, there's a couple of them with no earnings. Um, they look like they're on multiples, even if you... I mean, I, I think I put in 28 cents for um, Afterpay. And even at 28 cents, I, I can't make sense of the, the, the multiple. Um, how do you see those buy now, pay later companies? Um, uh, are they ridiculously expensive in your eyes? Um, and, uh, you know, should, should we be looking at them here and now? 
So, so first of all, the, the technology or the sector is a good thing, okay? It's innovative and it's uh, the future of, of payments and, and the banks need to get used to there being a more com a competitive threat of which they're investing in themselves. Commonwealth Bank is very heavily invested in buy now, pay later technologies themselves, for example. So the idea of it being in existence is not, a, not an issue. It's um, actually quite a good thing for society to have a cheaper cost of transactional stuff happening in finance. The valuations, of course, um, presuppose that these companies are going to have the market all to themselves, and I don't think that's going to be the case. I think that there's already competition from Alipay and PayPal and Visa and MasterCard and all the other payment systems in the world, not to mention the banks here, which are all heavily invested in blockchain technologies and in payment systems themselves. So consequently, I think that the valuation is not which, which I agree are overpriced, are not necessarily because they're bad ideas or bad technology, but because the market is giving them too, too favourable a point of view in terms of market share. So, so effectively, um, I guess we're a little bit too optimistic. The barriers to entry, they are low? According Relatively to low. And if you look behind the scenes at Commonwealth Bank, you'll find that there's a lot of money being expended on technology. Okay, so, you know, these franchises, and Australia's got this unique position of being, you know, where oligopolies thrive. Okay, big companies in small subsector groups have always thrived. You know, a couple of big telcos, a couple of big banks, a couple of big supermarkets. We have the demographics for those companies to do really well, whether it be good or bad, because it's not very competitive. But so, nevertheless, the banks have got their own heavy investments in these technological areas, which I think you'll find are a little bit further advanced than perhaps um, the more speculative side of the stock market suggests. Look, Sometimes, uh, and again, this, this concerns me a little bit, um, not greatly, but it's, it's a topical point. Um, sometimes these companies uh, get to such um, lofty valuations that they actually then um, can use that stock market valuation to their benefit. So all they have to do is then announce that they're going to be going out and buying something else and it's PE accretive and all of a sudden, you know, um, you're kind of scratching your head going, well, I, I, why didn't I see that coming? Um, do you think that the only way that these, well, do you think that a way that we can justify current prices for these buy now, pay later companies um, is on the basis of what they're likely to buy in the future? And if that's the case, I mean, that, that's just flicker coin kind of stuff. But yet you can look pretty silly in terms of your performance if you ignore them. Is there something within that you have ignored or you just don't want to look at or, or do you cover every angle when you're analysing these companies? Well we try to but of course you don't always necessarily get every angle accurate. Um, the stock market in Australia has got a long history of there's always a part of it that is a bit frothy. Um, often it's mining, sometimes technology, sometimes healthcare, sometimes biotech, but every cycle over any period of time has got its undervalued bit and its overvalued bits. And we just need to be circumspect about that, uh, that we need to run a ruler through the market valuation criteria and say these ones that fall above the line are worthy of investing and those below the line that don't. And certainly an investor that would have a, a blend, say for example using a small cap blend to go with the care enhanced, would probably do a good outcome because they'd capture some of those more speculative companies at the smaller end of the marketplace. Yep. So, so effectively, though, you're still monitoring? Yes. If they are a good investment? If they're in the ASX 200, Emmanuel. So okay. Of course. <laughs> um, Afterpay, though, rose, to, rose oh, very, it's, very it's sharply. Well, well up the ASX 200. And it's right up there, too. Um, I noticed today uh, that um, A2 Milk uh, came under a little bit of selling pressure. Um, it sort of had lofty valuations as well. Uh, obviously, the marketplace for the way it was... Um, I guess selling uh, milk back into China um, is now sort of 
yeah, so almost I, shut down. I, I, yeah. I saw its report this morning. It was a very bad report. Um, and they, they're obviously a New Zealand company, so they started trading early this morning in New Zealand and were down 10% in New Zealand on the back of you know, the, uh, the Daegu market being uh, drying up, so to speak, because of the lack of transport and travel. So unsurprising. Um, but it's a good business, A2 Milk. It's got a good product. It's got a good market share. And it's got some potential, but it's a China-related story. It's a really Chinese-related, and not just through... So not so much the milk you buy in the supermarket is, is growth, it's the infant formula whatnot into China that's its story. So I, um, I'm, I'm sort of watching that one now because it wouldn't be too many dollars away having fallen from 20-something down to 15.50 or so today, not too many dollars away from being relatively good yeah, value. So these opportunities come back, and you've just got to keep a level head, and so too with companies like, you know, Seek and car sales and realestate.com, those sorts of businesses, which at the right price um, are down the list a little bit, but because they have such market share, uh, they're, they're op opportunities uh, to be reviewed. And again, it's important to say, or to, to stay um, fairly optimistic because these companies have got a way of, at the right price, producing some fairly good returns. That's correct. And, and, and also, of course, within, within your advisor network, the strategic allocation of money is not always going to be to equity. So, you know, the equity portfolio needs to form part of that. Terrific. Um, uh, Malcolm, uh, we, um, do you think that we're likely to see a structural increase in the unemployment rate in Australia thanks to the pandemic? We already were, Emmanuel. So if you look at the, the ABS data going back a number of years now, there, is a, there was a noticeable uptrend in what's called underemployment, a very significant noticeable uptrend for quite a few years. So this, uh, the pandemic has actually accelerated that because, of course, we're talking about here of underemployment, particularly at youth, where people who have got part-time work is growing, the number of people part-time, whereas full-time is contracting. So that trend was underway anyway. Um, and so, yes, we have been having a structural change irrespective of the pandemic and it's going to mean fewer hours worked for an economy or society going forward which has got some economic consequences down the track. It's, uh, and that's important because uh, again if there's underemployment and now the level of underemployment is potentially higher people in that demographic are likely to struggle to be getting loans to be paying the bank back we're probably likely to see uh, the GDP rate lower for, for longer yep. and again that's got consequences for lower inflation and then it's got consequences for lower interest rates? Correct. So all of that feeds back to the low interest rates and the, and the sustenance of low interest rates and government controls over interest rates and that in turn feeds the stock valuations which is a favourable thing. So oddly you've got this economic weakness coming from unemployment and you've got this consequential strength coming from the low interest rates that are driven by it. Okay. So the sort of the juggling between the good and the bad is something the stock market needs to consider. At which point do you worry that there's too much debt in the world? <laughs> well, a couple of years ago, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the Australian federal government's borrowing a billion dollars a day now, and that's unusual for, for us, in fact, uh, unprecedented. So building up a, a mountain of debt is uh, an issue. However, they're building it up with uh, issuing three-year bonds at 0.16%, 0.16, not 1.6, 0.16. And, of course, the Reserve Bank is turning around and buying them. So the federal government's creating them for, and then the Reserve Bank's buying them. It's a bit of a, a sort of a circular process going on and the Reserve Bank's then using the money supply to push through the term funding facility into the banking system. So it's a quite a, uh, a cosy relationship point at the moment. Sooner or later, there's a day of reckoning. Um, how far the can can be kicked down the road, we'll see. Uh, but it's but going to be... Is, Malcolm, this is happening in America 
It's already happened in Greece. It's happening throughout Europe, the UK, um, Australia. You know, where is that day of reckoning? And, and, and again, this is the, uh, probably the biggest concern that we, that we all have, that we say, well, debt is... I mean, take the Federal Reserve. Its balance sheet is expected to blow out from $7 trillion to $14 trillion over the next little while. Yeah, it's an asset, not a liability, though, so um, it uh, never has to be repaid. So, um, you know, you print money, you create an asset, which is a different to government debt, which is, uh, you know, the fiscal area. And government debt is, a, is an issue that um, is growing and growing and growing and growing. And at the same time, you've got this, this dilutionary impact of money printing and this debt impact of borrowing. And the, the combination of the two has been the sweet spot for economic sustenance, which is why central banks and government have taken control. So whilst it stays a sweet spot, happy days. And as I said before, the other side of the hill, there's some event, either it's the diminution of pricing power in the future, it's probably the big deal here, so pricing power diminishes, consequently you have weaker economic outcomes as this whole process needs to be repaid. Now, that hasn't happened yet, and I suspect that one of the big deals, um, even if it's subconsciously that's causing there to be so much social unrest in America based on inequality, is people really know this is happening. Okay, they really know that there is a problem, a deep-rooted problem in the economy, that younger people are going to have to pay for this. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's the big issue. And when it manifests in, in asset pricing or economics, we'll have to wait and see because central banks are trying to control that flow for a while. So you personally think that we're more likely to see it manifest itself in higher prices down the track? Higher prices, but by higher prices I mean it's getting a bit economic, but higher prices I mean a diminished pricing power. So you need to make more dollars or yen or euros to be able to afford the product, which is a diminution of your pricing power, which is inflationary, as opposed to prices just necessarily shooting up. People need to work harder to make the dollar to buy the thing. So that, that's the concept as I see it, and, and that, that weighs on economic activity as the years progress, and consequently the next generation, quite rightly, is a little concerned about uh, how things might look. And I guess the $64,000 question here is, in your humble opinion, how far off are we from that point? Is it many, many years ahead, or is it... So the long cycle now, or the, the bottom of the cycle now playing itself out over the next 10 years? Yeah, we're into that bottom of the cycle, and it's going to be a few years before it uh, rears its head. Um, if it rears its head sooner than that, we've got market problems. But I suspect that there's enough control. I mean, look at the mo modern monetary theorist. The control over economic money supply is so strong and they can, and they can get away with it, as I said before, because of the disinflationary environment. And it's, um, it's a happy medium between low inflation and money production that's keeping the balance, uh, the status quo in place. I must say, I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating to watch this play itself out over the next five, maybe ten years. But for sure, I, I, I'm with you on that. I, I believe that, uh, that it's going to be a, a very interesting um, uh, dynamic that we, that we muddle through, I think, uh, over the next little while. Um, with that, thank you very much for, uh, for, for being with us, uh, Malcolm. I uh, really appreciate your insights. Um, thanks for an update on the portfolio and a view on the markets and uh, look forward to talking to you again in the not-too-distant future. It's my pleasure, Manager. Thank you very much. Thanks, Malcolm.